0: Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. You know, most people, at least at some point in their lives, become subject to catastrophic thinking. That is, worrying about a possible future scenario where something disastrous happens. Now, people usually move past that thinking if it's focused on just one thing, like you know the, the odd looks that your boss has been giving you, which you surely have interpreted as you're about to get fired, when in fact he's just wondering why you've come back from lunch and you still have a piece of lettuce stuck to your front tooth. But when people start obsessing over what might happen, And when catastrophic thinking becomes a source of ongoing anxiety, there are real problems on the horizon. Well, I have to say there's a fair amount of catastrophic thinking in the Bible, but it's usually focused on a real threat. For example, the idea of the day of the Lord is mentioned 200 times in the Bible, and it often refers to a a pending invasion. It it could be an invasion by, by foreign armies, it could even be an invasion of pests like, like locusts. Uh, and typically, it's interpreted as a consequence of Israel's unfaithfulness. And the day of the Lord isn't always a, a far future prophecy. It, it's very often speaking about something that's right around the corner or something that's already happening in real time. In St. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he's addressing people who are worrying about the future. They're thinking, what happens to us when Jesus comes back? That'll be our day of the Lord, when Jesus returns. Do we get to go with him while all of our dead friends and loved ones are just left to lie in their graves? Well, Paul refers to people as ones who are one of two things. They're either awake or they're asleep, which is a very common biblical way of talking about both the living and the dead. The living are awake, the dead are asleep. But Paul expands that metaphor to speak of those who are paying attention to what's going on. Those are the ones who are awake. And those who have their heads in the sand and aren't paying any attention. Those would be the ones who are asleep. But in the end, he assures the people that by trusting Jesus, Whether they are living or whether they are dead, they will live with him. He gives them that assurance. But there's an underlying issue here for the people who are asking the question, and that's fear. It's fear that maybe they don't have things sorted out properly. It's it's fear that maybe God has somehow miscalculated, and those who have had the misfortune to die too soon will simply be forgotten. The the whole desire for days and times that can somehow put Jesus' return on the calendar so that you know the exact date, all of that's put to rest by Paul when he says that such a day, whether it's Jesus' return or whether it's a disastrous foreign invasion, none of that can be determined by us. Instead, we live in the light of the Holy Spirit and by faith in God's work in and through Jesus. You know, there's a big difference between fearing God in terms of awe and worship and fearing God because we think he's not trustworthy or that perhaps he's up to no good. Jesus' parable about the servants and the talents addresses in part this issue of fear. Of the three servants entrusted with their boss's wealth, the one given the single talent operated out of fear Because he had characterized the man as hard and obtaining wealth in places where he hadn't directly worked for it. Now, of course, that's exactly what investors do. (laughs) They put their money into somebody else's enterprise, somebody else's business, which then fuels that business. And then they enjoy a profit when the enterprise does well, when it's successful. Conversely, if the enterprise fails, then the investment will suffer as well. But the one servant, the third servant, saw this characteristic as one that produced fear. In this parable, the man who owns the estate entrusts his three servants with his wealth and then promptly leaves. He goes off on a trip, goes on vacation. We're not told that he gives the servants any specific instructions. He just hands over the money and then leaves. And it was a lot of money The wealth is described in in ancient units of measure that are called talents. Now, this isn't a talent in terms of a skill like, you know, juggling or playing the oboe. The, the, The talent was usually made up of silver or gold, and each talent was heavy. It weighed about 75 pounds. So no matter how much was entrusted to each servant, they all had some pretty heavy stuff to lug around with them. Now, in terms of value, a talent was the equivalent of about 15 years worth of income for the average laborer of the day. Now, if we were to translate that into today's dollars, a talent would be worth somewhere around $700,000. That means that the first servant with his five talents was given about $3.5 million, and the second was given the equivalent of about $1.4 million. And even with the measly $700,000 equivalent dollars given to the third servant. It all suggested a great deal of trust that the owner had in his servant's respective abilities. And when the owner returns, the first two uh, servants show that they invested the money in the marketplace and each one doubled the holdings. Now, understandably, the owner is quite pleased with this, but When the third servant shows up and plops down his big bag of money with dirt still all over it from the hole he had just hauled it out of, and then he offers his assessment of the owner's character, the owner is not impressed, at least not in a positive way. Now, at at first blush, it seems like the owner is, is a kind of heartless person, interested only in increasing his wealth. But there may be something else going on here. The man gave his servants the freedom to do what they thought best with his money. And he apparently assumed that they would use it wisely. And the first two did not disappoint. But his comments to the third servant suggest that the owner was interested more in the servant's faithfulness than he was in the actual financial return. After all, he said he would be fine if the third servant had simply put the money in the bank and just gotten a few points of interest. It's, it's interesting that the owner doesn't entrust the servants with, with land or, or livestock. He entrusts them with money. He entrusts them with wealth that can be taken off to the marketplace, that can be invested, that can be increased. It, it wasn't just that he wanted to get richer than he was. It was that investing money was his business, just like farming or ranching would be another's business. And he entrusted his servants to keep the business in operation in his absence. The first two understood that to be given this wealth was to participate in the owner's business, the way that sons might do in the ancient world, like like children who would one day be heirs of the estate. But the third understood his assignment to be to hide the money away so that the owner got it back just the way he had left it. No change, no profit, no loss. He apparently saw the talent as a a single commodity, one that you either have or one that you have lost. The servant failed to recognize that the talent, when taken to market, became a, a dynamic thing, capable of investing in other enterprises while itself growing in value. Now, the wealth belonged to the owner, even though the servants were charged with caring for it. But even though it was his money, The servants were invited to participate in the dynamic ability of that money to grow. And in their faithful participation, they were were rewarded. They were rewarded first in that they were entrusted with even greater responsibility. And second, they were invited to enter into their master's joy. And the third servant, of course, missed out on all of this. Instead, he's fired from his job, and he's kicked off the estate. And and Jesus uses one of his his favorite metaphors for this kind of thing when he says that the servant will now go to the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, a a place familiar to those who have lost great jobs and now have to stand in the unemployment line. You know, there's another parable that comes right before this one. It's in Matthew 24, just one chapter before. That's kind of a parallel to this one. Jesus tells a story about a man who puts one of his servants in charge of all the other servants. If the man shows up and finds that the servant is taking good care of the others, then the man will bless him. He'll give him greater responsibilities. But if the servant expecting the man to be delayed abuses the other servants and goes off drinking with his no account friends, then there will be someone else tossed into the outer darkness, more weeping, more gnashing of teeth. In these parables, Jesus is preparing his followers for a delay in his return. It's a long wait until God reconciles all things to himself. It's a call to be faithful with what God has granted to us and to participate in the work that is the reality of the kingdom of God. Now, some scholars have also suggested that Jesus was was also critiquing the leaders of Israel and characterizing them as that third servant who buried his talent in the ground. The leaders of Israel seem to have abandoned their charge to bring blessing to all the families of the earth, which we hear in Genesis chapter 12, as God calls Abram. And, And instead, the leaders had hunkered down and caused Israel to hunker down, and they held rigidly, to their interpretation of the Jewish law in order to keep Israel's identity intact. Ironically, by putting that identity into a kind of legalistic box, burying it in the ground to keep it safe, so to speak, they actually lost their identity. You know, it's, it's amazing how much power can come out of fear. The third servant feared his boss. He feared losing the talent. He feared losing his position, which he did anyway. I, I have to say, I, I sometimes worry about the fear that seems to characterize the, the, the church at large in our cultural context. There's fear about the wrong candidates getting elected. And I wanna say how much I so appreciate Eleanor's lovely prayer toward that this morning but there is still people fear that. There's fear over not having a seat at the table of political power, fear of losing constitutional rights, fear of losing our churches because of a pandemic. In a context of fear, it's easy to lose one's identity, to forget who you really are and what you've been called to do in life. But this parable actually suggests something else. The people of God are called to live out their calling without fear. The true gifts that we have in this life, gifts of love and compassion and beauty and joy are not granted to us by governments or nations or political leaders or movements. They are granted by God and entrusted to us as dynamic realities that we take into the broken world that God loves and is reconciling to himself. You know, this this parable, like the others that Jesus told, was offered in a context of oppression and occupation. Israel was under the control of the Roman Empire and freedom was prescribed by the emperor and the Roman Senate. So Jesus wasn't telling his followers to be faithful about the business of God's kingdom in a context of national independence and freedom. The people of Israel had to carry burdens that had been imposed upon them, both internally and externally. But still, Jesus called them to faithfulness, regardless of the present circumstances. I find this realization to be helpful right now. In spite of our current difficulties, we are still called to faithfulness. God has poured out his generosity upon us and even in the age of COVID, we are to participate in his gifts. Even when people like us will not be gathering for worship in person for a while, out of our concern for safety, God remains faithful and generous. We just have to look for what he is doing in new places. I have to say that in spite of all the difficulties that we've been experiencing, I have been very encouraged by what I've seen and experienced since I've been with you here at The Vine. I've seen a a church council and a staff that are deeply committed to the life and health of the church. I've seen the continuation of ministry to the needy of our community. And even though we can't meet for worship in person, I've experienced, along with some of you, gatherings online for worship and sharing and prayer, not only Sunday morning, but on on Tuesday nights. And and we've had times in the park for fellowship and the celebration of the Lord's Supper. I, I know of people who are finding new and creative ways to study scripture, to pray, and to share life with other people. I've heard stories of people adjusting their lives to care for others, to care for their children and their co-workers and for others in their scope of influence. This is really good stuff, my friends. This is taking our talents to market because we are doing our master's business. You know, I pray that our dear friend and founding pastor, Michael Swanson, can just feel blessed that the legacy he left here was not a building, not a program, but that it was a body of people who recognized the calling to love and serve the Lord. You know, waiting looms largely in our consciousness these days. We're waiting for the pandemic to end. We're waiting for the presidential election to be finalized. We're waiting to see what our holiday season will be like. We're waiting to see what church will be like in the coming months. But we're also waiting for Jesus, just as the bridesmaids were waiting for the groom, just as the servants were waiting for the return of their master. We do indeed look to the future when Jesus will return, when the kingdom of God will be fulfilled, but we don't wait absent of Jesus. Even as we wait for the kingdom, we don't wait in the absence of the kingdom because it's at hand. Because God's Spirit is with us, Jesus is with us. The work and ministry of Jesus is real and ongoing and he has entrusted his gifts to us that we might be about his business. And yes, He knows our abilities, he knows our capacities, he knows our limitations. But he also fills us with his spirit that we might be empowered and blessed to enter into his joy. Let this prayer that comes from Psalm 90 be ours today. God our Father, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children, and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen. And even in our desire to be faithful to God and to the gifts he has given to us, we pause right now to recognize and confess our failure to always be that kind of people. And so we come to the God who knows us, the one for whom we wait with preparation and anticipation. And we tell the truth about ourselves. It's something that we call confession, And in doing so, we trust in his loving grace and his forgiveness, looking ahead with confidence to that great time when God's kingdom will be fulfilled. And so we pray together. God of healing, God of wholeness, we bring our brokenness, our sinfulness, our fears and despair and lay them at your feet. God of healing, God of wholeness, we hold out hearts and hands, minds and souls to feel your touch and know the peace that only you can bring. God of healing, God of wholeness, this precious moment in your presence and power, grant us faith and confidence that here broken lives are made whole. Amen. And now my friends, May the Lord enrich us with his grace and nourish us with his blessing. The Lord defend us from trouble and keep us from all evil. The Lord receives our prayers and absolves us from our offenses. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.